Welcome to the Redemption Church Podcast. We exist to become witnesses to God's new creation so that every man, woman, and child has a daily encounter with Jesus. We believe that as a family of servant missionaries, we are empowered to participate in God's story because of the good news that King Jesus is making all things new. If the biblical story is not the one that really controls our thinking, then inevitably we will be swept into the story the world tells about itself. And we'll become increasingly indistinguishable from the pagan world of which we are a part. The story of God is not just a doctrine. It's not just a neat way to know the Bible. The story of God is actually a way of life. It's a story that has values, that provides identity, that gives actions, that gives mission. Just like any story that you buy into, and believe it or not, whether you like it or not, you have a story that is informing who you think you are and how you live your life. And in light of that, last week, I made the, de- the, the, the declaration that your definition of the gospel is also based on your understanding of the story. So I would say it this way, if the biblical story is not the one that really controls our understanding of the gospel, then inevitably we'll give a wrong picture of the good news to the world And not just give a wrong picture and wrong news to the world, but actually will not be able to appropriate the power of the gospel in our own life. And so we looked last week at the definition of a gospel, and I hope in one sense it kind of opened your mind and eyes that the gospel isn't just this evangelical plan of salvation to pray for forgiveness so we can go to heaven. That is not how Paul and the New Testament writers and even Isaiah understood the good news. And it's not wrong that any of those things are wrong. Does Jesus Christ forgive our sins? Past, present, future. How many of you are thankful for that? I'm super thankful for that. Like that is amazing news, but in a sense that's just an aspect of the gospel. We saw last week that every time the word heaven, sorry, the gospel is used, heaven is never even connected to it. Why? As for Paul, heaven was not the end of the world. Heaven was not the goal of what the good news was all about. And so I gave you last week 10 threads, 10 themes of what the New Testament writers in the book of Isaiah, the Old Testament, gave us about what that gospel looks like. And there was a host of things that you and I probably never think of about the gospel. Like, if I told you the gospel is about David, you'd be like, okay, neat. But Paul actually says, this is my gospel. Jesus, raised from the dead, descendant of David. End of sentence. And we looked at God spoke the good news to Abraham 4,000 years ago. And he said, this is what I preached to Abraham. I called it the gospel. And what did Paul say the gospel was that God preached to Abraham? In you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And so I'm not going to go through all ten of those threads, but what I want to do this morning is actually try to prove to you that your understanding of the story of God actually determines your understanding of the gospel. And if we're going to have a correct, a more accurate definition of the gospel, we must understand the biblical story. 
Here's a little analogy. I don't know if you can read that. You should sit up front and maybe be able to see it a little bit better. But I have on the, on the left just some statements. Rob married his high school sweetheart, Amy. Rob went missing one day after work. Amy's cousin, Brandon, was a private investigator. Jack's old girlfriend had just moved to back to their hometown. And Brandon found Rob's car on the side of the road. And Brandon found a new job. Okay, what does that mean? What does that mean to you? Say it out loud. Nothing. But if I tell you there's a boy named Harry who survived the curse of the greatest dark wizard of all time, now all of a sudden you're like, oh, I know what you're talking about. Why? What's the difference? You know the background, the story. And it's unfortunate that most of us know Harry Potter far better than we know the biblical story. I'm not going to like walk through the Harry Potter story with you, but I hope you understand my point. Is that you can't just take facts and say you know things. You have to put them together in some sort of story to make sense. And by the way, the story on the left... I just made up random facts. It's not a real story. So if you're annoyed by that, I'm sorry. So what I want to do this morning is walk through a biblical understanding of the story of God that gives uh, meaning, gives foundation, gives actually substance to those 10 threads of the good news that we looked at last week. So let's pray. Father, help us to hear this morning the good news of Jesus, that he has come to destroy all the powers of sin, Satan, and death, and destroy the world that was forfeited in Adam's rebellion, so that now your world can actually be launched and established, that is a world of life and righteousness, and a king who looks out for us and loves us, so that through all of that you may come and be with us. Give you praise for that in Jesus' name. Amen. I will say this ahead of time. I have 452 slides. I'm going to be flying through them. If you're a type A person, I will just email this to you. It'll make you a lot happier. Okay, so just find Lauren after, I'm kidding, find me after the gathering and I will be more than happy to email all of this to you. If you want to take pictures and notes, because that's how you learn, great. But I also want you to know, like, you're going to be like, wait, what happened? Um, It'll be okay. I'll email it to you. Here at Redemption, we believe the story of God takes place, the drama, if you will, a play, takes place in six acts. And the first act actually is one of the most important acts because without understanding the introduction to the story, you miss everything else about the story. And so what I want to do is walk through with you these six acts of God to, from creation to the end of the story of God but just highlighting certain elements, certain themes. Obviously, I could be here for 14 days giving you the story of God, and none of us want that at this point. Act 1. I have a convoluted slide, and you're going to look at it and be like, what is going on? There's a picture of the Trinity. 
It's a classical definition picture of how the church fathers and, and the church theologians have pictured God. In the very center is God, and on the outside you have the three persons of God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And you see that the Son is God, and the Holy Spirit is God, and the Father is God. But at the same time, the Son is not the Father, and the Father is not the Spirit, and the Spirit is not the Son. And so you have a God who is one in essence, one in being, who exists in three persons. And before the creation of the world, this triune God that we evangelicals claim to be the God of Scripture actually had a relationship with one another. Jesus says, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world even existed. And Father, I desire that they also, you and I, may be where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. And so surrounding this triangle is a circle of three words that I include here called love, life, and lights. And theologically, we say that the God of Scripture, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, all mutually indwell one another. They belong to one another. They, they relate to one another. And so that everything that the Father is, the Son is. Everything the Son is, the Father is. And all the way around, you see that this relationship exists of love. And it's interesting. How many people does it take to have love? One or two, by the way. Someone has to give it, and someone has to what? Receive it. Some of you love to love others by giving of yourself, and how many of you love it when other people try to love you? That is not love. Love is the ability to receive someone else's act of service on your behalf. And so the God of Scripture was mutually indwelling of love, and that's why the Bible says God is love. But God is also light, and He's life. I'm not going to walk through each one of those, but this is the God of Scripture that we worship, that they mutually indwelled one another, and they lived in a relationship of love, life, and light. And you want to know where I get love, life, and light from? Read John 1 or 1 John 1, and you will see the words love, life, and light described about Jesus and the Father everywhere. This is the God that we worshiped. And when He created the world's, He didn't create the world out of need. He wasn't like all of the other Babylonian gods who created humans because they were needy and wanted them to get food for them. Literal true story. But God, rather out of deficiency, created the world out of sufficiency. He wanted everything that he was, his love, his life, and his light, to overflow out of him. And he wanted to actually share that love, life, and light with the world, with you and me. And so the way that God would express and communicate his presence, his love, life, and light to us is actually by coming and being with us. If you really want to share your love with somebody, how do you have to do that? You have to be present. In fact, the best gift you can give anyone is your presence. It's healthy. So here God is saying, I want to communicate and share my love, life, and light with the world. And how would he do that most fully? Not just by saying it, not just by sending Jesus, which are both true, but by actually coming to be present with us. And so he created a world, a world where he gave Adam and Eve 
a responsibility. He gave this community, Adam and Eve, a mission, a missional community. I should back up one step. God himself exists as a missional community. A community who went on mission to create this world. And so this world that God created now, he says to Adam and Eve, you are to come and you are to expand the Garden of Eden to the ends of the earth. I don't know what you think about the Garden of Eden, but it's not just this place where humanity was always supposed to live. What would happen a thousand years after Adam and Eve? What if they never sinned? Were they supposed to just like be like New York City and build a tower up to the sky and you know you push the elevator button and you go up floor 458,602? No, humanity was not supposed to live in the garden. In fact, they tried that a little bit later in Genesis chapter 11. It didn't go well for them, Tower of Babel. So God told Adam and Eve to expand the Garden of Eden to the end of the earth. And in fact, they were to finish the projects. See, I think we need to come to see that God created the earth majestically, beautifully, and very, very good. But you know what else is true about this earth? It's incomplete. God made the earth incomplete. How do we know that? Does that sound like I'm being mean about God? No. He entrusted, he asked and created humanity and asked them to participate in this world that he's going to come and dwell. And so now he's inviting humanity to come and participate in that project. And he gives the mission to Adam and Eve and to humanity to build the world, to prepare it for the king. In the ancient world, a king, when he would claim a new territory, and he wanted to take up residence there, he wouldn't just immediately go there. He'd actually stay where he was currently residing, send all of his workers in, build the palace, build the walls, make sure there was water and everything was ready. And when everything was finally completed, everyone would come out of the city and then everyone would usher the king into his city saying, here is your kingdom. And this is the image we get of God that he gave humanity this mission to build his earth, his kingdom, his home. And when it was done, we would usher the king into his new worlds. Which is why in Revelation, Jesus comes back and who's behind him? All of us ushering him into his new worlds. So God would come and dwell with his creation. And his love and his life and his light would pervade everything. But six minutes into the story, we come to a second act. We call this the act of rebellion. Six minutes, because that's about how long it takes you to read Genesis 1 and 2. It's not literal, okay? But shortly after, God's glorious plan for your and my good to be able to dwell with the God of the universe, to actually have life that's truly life, to actually have love where we are fully loved and fully known and fully accepted, and there's no more fractures in relationships, there's no more insecurity, and there is full light where you are no longer in the darkness, you're not not known, you can actually be fully known, God says, that is what we're supposed to do, but it was ruins, it was fractured. When Adam and Eve rebelled against God's good rule. And how was that fractured? It was fractured by a serpent. 
come to theology night the next time we have one and you'll see who the serpent is. But the later scriptures call him the arch enemy of God, the Satan, the enemy, the adversary. And he snuck into God's creation and he marred and he fractured and he broke God's plan for what God had intended for the world because... Adam and Eve rebelled. So what did Adam and Eve's rebellion do? There's two consequences. The first consequence is that sin and death are now entered into the world. Sin has fractured all of our relationships, and the outcome of all of that sin is death and separation. Such that I would say it this way, that we are not right with God. This is very clearly a good evangelical doctrine, that sin has fractured our relationship. We are separated from God Romans 8 says, not only do we not want to do good, we can't do good. We don't want God. We are enemies of God. We'd rather worship anything in this earth than God himself. This is the fracture that happened between Adam and Eve. But I want you to know this. Because you're not right with God, you're also not right with your own self. Anybody angry this morning? Anyone upset, stressed, nervous? No one? Just me? When the microphone turned on and I'm coughing up a lung, I'm like, what? You're not right with yourself. You see this in the Garden of Eden, and this is just a quick slide that we could be a whole sermon on, but just know this. Adam and Eve experienced shame. Tad alluded to this. How many of you just honestly feel so insecure and so inadequate? We all do. And all you do is cover everything up, your insecurities, your inadequacy, because of this shame that you feel that you are wrong. And so Adam and Eve, in their shame, they covered themselves. And it's not just enough for you and I to cover ourselves in clothes. That's that's just like an initial covering. We have to find everything else in this world to cover ourselves up. And you know the number one way you cover yourself up is your self-righteousness. You point out everyone else's problems to make yourself feel better because you know you are a shameful piece of crap. That's why self-righteousness is so destructive and so antithetical to the good news of Jesus. Adam and Eve, because of their shame and their deep insecurity, when God comes walking in, what do they do? They hide. And what do we do when other people come walking in on us? We try to hide. We don't want other people to really know who we are, what we're really doing, what our deepest thoughts are. And so we hide because we're afraid. And we're not all sorry with ourselves because we're guilt. We feel this guilt. Shame is I am wrong. Guilt is more I have done wrong. I've done something wrong. And when you do something wrong, what do you do? The same thing Adam and Eve does. Blame everyone else. It wasn't me. It was a woman you gave me. Eve, wasn't me. It was a serpent. He's the one who did it. So we blame everyone else because of our inadequacies. And because you're not right with God, you experience this shame, this fear, this guilt all the time. And we live in shame and covering and trying to find things to make ourselves feel good about ourselves. We hide our true selves from everybody and we blame others for all of our problems. I thought church was supposed to be happy. Well, If that's all going on inside of you, who do you take that out on? Who do you take it out on? 
And how do other people feel about your shame, your fear, and your guilt? And I'm like, I don't like that person. They're a jerk. Right? Because what's going on inside of here has to come out, and it's going to fracture relationships. And so you're not right with others. And eventually, you're not right with the world. The very thing you are made from is the very thing to which you return. The thing you are made to rule over is now the thing ruling over you, the world. And so we can look at the, the Garden of Eden and the, and the problem of sin from this. Number one, the consequence was this, death and sin to all of ourselves, including God, ourselves, and others, and the world God made us to be in charge of. But there's another consequence. And that has to do with why the serpent actually snuck into the world. I was teaching a class at People in Need. It's a homeless shelter, and they... Um, kind of put people in a house and give them some housing and get them some jobs. And I teach a story of God for them. And I began to ask them this question, and I asked them about Joker. I'm not a big Batman guy, okay? Like, I've never even seen the Heath Ledger movie. I know, shoot me, okay? Um, but I know a little bit about Batman. So if I get this wrong, my theology of DC or Marvel is not great, okay? You already know right now that I don't know it. But what is Joker trying to do? Just come in and make Batman look like an idiot? Sure, he wants to do that. But what else does he want to do? Watch everything burn. Did someone say the word chaos? That's exactly what this homeless guy told me. He said all he wants to do is go in and promote his chaos in all of Gotham. And I went, that's exactly what Satan wants to do. He wants to be the ruler of this world and spread his chaos throughout. See, Adam and Eve were supposed to be the images of God and actually fill the world with the image of God. And yet when Adam and Eve gave in to the serpent, they didn't just fracture the relationship with God, they actually lost the rulership, the authority over the world. So that now who is ruling this world? And what is he doing? He's filling the world with who he is with death and hatred and strife in everything we see when we turn on the news. Adam forfeited God's world to Satan, who is now filling the world with his identity. I mean, we thought it, the world was off to a great start. And yet here the rebellion tells us that at the end of Genesis chapter 3, the world that God gave to Adam to finish and prepare for his arrival, for his kingdom, is now being ruled by his arch enemy. And there are three operative powers at work in this world, Satan, sin, and death. So what was God going to do? The third act is a story called Israel. Israel is not just a bunch of lessons for you to learn how to obey God, and if you don't, what he'll do to you. Israel is actually God's answer to the serpent taking over the world. Israel is actually God's answer to the sin that was actually now in the world. Israel is the answer to take care of the death and the separation that exists between you, me, God, and everything on this creation. Back in our covenant series a few weeks ago, I dealt with Exodus 19. And I dealt with a lot of this. And so if you're new, I apologize. I would encourage you to go back and listen to that because I'm going to kind of walk through Israel quickly in four stages. First of all, God's, God's answer is a man. 
Isn't it interesting? God's answer is always what? A person. Who continually what? Screws up. How many of you are like, I'm done with that person. They've screwed up six times. Okay. You don't have the patience of God yet. And you don't understand how patient he is with you. And yet God chooses a man. And he says to Abraham, leave, go to a land you don't even know where you're going. And when you get there, what am I going to do? I'm going to bless you. There's going to be individual blessing for Abraham. He's going to have a great family, a great name, a great nation will come out of him. And everyone who blesses him will be blessed. And so there's this individual blessing for Abraham. And yet there's also individual blessing for the sake of universal so the most climactic line in Genesis 12, 3 in the Hebrew says, In you all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Galatians 3, 8, the gospel. The gospel is that the blessing of creation is going to actually come to all of the world through Abraham. And so Abraham has a family and that turns into a nation. And Moses brings them out of Egypt through the Red Sea and he gets them onto the mountain, Mount Sinai, where God says to this new nation, here is what you're to do. You're to be a kingdom of priests. You're to actually draw the world to me through your life together. The way you structure your life, the way you live your life, the way that you love your neighbor as yourself will actually be the means by which the nations will come to me. And so as you follow Israel's history, it kind of goes up and down, up and down, up and down until you get to like the, the apex of Ameri American history. You see what I just did there? Not American history. The apex of Israelite history. I was thinking like in the back of my mind, what's the apex of American history for you? I don't know. Everyone, I'm, I was really young, but everyone tells me older than me that the Reagan era was like the golden years of American history. I don't know if that's true or not. I don't care. My point is, is I do know that the golden point for Israel's history is David and his son Solomon. And the reason we know that is every king after is compared to David. When Israel gets thrown in exile, all the prophets say, who's coming back? David's coming back. Why? Because they knew that God had promised David an everlasting throne, that there'd be someone from his descendant who would always be reigning and ruling over all of the earth. And they believed that one day one of his descendants would come and establish his kingdom. But David was not that person. He was very close. He handed his, son, his kingdom over to his son Solomon. And if you remember the story of the African princess named the Queen of Sheba. I don't know if you ever read this story, but like, it's just a random story. Like The first few chapters are Solomon's wisdom. Then it's like Solomon owns everything. He has more gold than everything. He has more than everything. He's amazing, amazing. He builds a temple. And then, like, the Queen of Sheba comes. Why is that an important story? Because you see that what historians say is potentially the second most powerful person in all the world at that time got on a boat, sailed across the Mediterranean Sea to visit Jerusalem. What did God say Israel's purpose was? To be a nation who would draw the nations to who? To God. They were actually living out who they were supposed to be. And so the Queen of Sheba's story in 1 Kings chapter 10 depicts that Israel's like, man, look at this, the nations are coming. 1 Kings chapter 11, verse 1. Now Solomon loved all of his foreign wives who turned his heart 
after idols. Women, you're not the problem. Don't, don't read that that way. Hear it this way. Solomon began to love other gods. See, David, was he a sinner? Absolutely. But did David ever, you ever find David worshiping any other god? Was Solomon a sinner? Was he a good king? For a while, but why is he not David? Because he gave his heart to other gods. That's the issue. Not if you're right or wrong or perfect or imperfect. We're all imperfect. The issue is that David never gave himself to other gods. And here Solomon gives himself to other gods. And so what does God do? I'm not going to go through all the history, but he splits the nation into a northern and southern kingdom. And they're taken captive. And the northern kingdom is taken by Assyria in 722. And three times Nebuchadnezzar around 600 BC comes and destroys Jerusalem and takes Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego off to Babylon. And now number four in this Old Testament story is the prophetic outlook of doom and restoration. Doom that God is going to judge Israel, judge their neighbors, judge the nations because of their refusal to worship God and judge Israel because of their refusal to give justice to the quartet of the, of the, of the poor and the, and the orphans and the widows and all of these marginalized people. But I want you to understand this. God also promises restoration. And the most important part about this restoration is not that just God will give them land for a thousand years. Maybe, maybe he won't. The most important part about this restoration is that God says, I said, you'd become for me a kingdom of priests. You have not become that. Instead of the nations coming to me, I'm going to send you to the nations. But one day I'm going to bring you back to myself and actually make you become the people I've always wanted you to become. That's the restoration that is promised for Israel. But I ask again, why could Israel never become who they were supposed to be? Go back to the rebellion. The powers of sin, Satan, and death are just too strong. They're too powerful. David can't overcome them. Abraham can't overcome them. Moses can't overcome them. And you can't overcome them. And so at the end of the Old Testament, you have a promise that one day God is going to make his people become who he wants them to become. But in order to do that, what had to be destroyed? What had to be dealt with? We come to Act 4 and the new, come to the New Testament, and the Act 4 is Jesus. And obviously there's a million things you want to say about Jesus, but I just want to say two things about Jesus. Number one, the cross. What does the cross do? As good Christians in America, we all know the cross forgives our sins, and it does. But it does something far more than that. The cross actually brings an end to the cosmic world that Satan is ruling over. It destroys the powers of sin, Satan, and death. And here's just one passage where all three of those are actually connected through the cross. Paul says in Colossians chapter 2, when you were dead not having life, dead, death, in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, being Gentiles, God made you alive with Christ. So death is talked about. Sins are talked about. Two, he forgave us all of our sins. 
having canceled the charge of legal indebtedness which stood against us and condemned us. Like, you have like your 258 billion sins that are nailed right here, and those are all the reasons why God should condemn you and send you to a place separate from him for all of eternity. And Paul says, because of the cross, that has been taken away. In fact, that whole record has been nailed to the cross. But what else did he take care of on the cross? Not just death, not just sin, but what? And having disarmed the powers and authorities. Who are the powers and authorities? Those are Satan and all of his cohort who are ruling the nations at this point. And Jesus has come and disarmed them, made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. What does the cross of Jesus do? It destroys the cosmic powers of sin, Satan, and death. And what does the resurrection do? If it destroys one world, the resurrection is not just proof that God was happy with his sacrifice for you. The resurrection actually means there's a new world that's actually being launched. There's a new world where the powers are no longer ruling and sin is no longer the operative power and death is no longer the outcome for all of that. There's a new world where Jesus is reigning, where there's life, and where there's justice. And so what we could actually say about this is that the cross dealt with all the powers on the left of this present age. And the resurrection has launched this new world, this new creational world that God is establishing. In God's first world, he started the world and then he gave the, made the people. In God's second world, he's starting with the people and then he's going to make the world's. And what we see in the cross and the resurrection of Jesus is that you, if you have your sins forgiven, can leave behind which realm? The present age and be a part of what? The new age. You can no longer experience death, but now you can experience life. And you can experience what it lives, a life of justice. And here's the most crazy part of all this. The Bible tells us that these two worlds exist at the same time. These two worlds exist at the same time. You're like, what do you mean? What I'm saying is that that old world that Jesus did a, destroyed and put disarmed on the cross, it's been dealt, I use like a death blow. It's like someone stuck a sword in Satan's gut and he's bleeding out. No doctor can fix him. There's no remedy for it. He's going to die, but he's not dead yet. This is why the New Testament scriptures tell us that this present age is passing away. You ever read that in 1 John 2? What does that mean? Why is it passing away? Because Jesus at the cross dealt a death blow to this world and it's coming to an end. But he can also tell you in 1 John chapter 2, verse 8, that the new light is already dawning. The new world is, you can see it. It's like the morning sun in the morning. Like just as you know that sun's coming up as soon as you look at the ocean you can be assured that the new world is coming. So at the end of the story of Jesus in Scripture, in the sense of the Gospels and his human life, this is what the world looks like. And so we come to the church, Act 5. What does the church do? What is the church's role? Well, I talked about this and talk about this a lot, so I'm not going to belabor it a whole lot. 
Because if you stick around for redemption for six minutes, you're going to hear it. But my point is, is that the church enters into the story during this overlap. Now, put your thinking glasses on. You're like, all right, already way too much information. I'm on overload. Okay, take a deep breath. I'm going to ask you one more question right now. Why is there an overlap? Couldn't Jesus have just come back and done away with Satan's realm forever? And just brought God's new world to it? Was, was Jesus not powerful enough to do that? Why did he do it this way? Anybody have any, questions, any thoughts on that? Just go back in the story. We need to prepare the way for God. And what, I'm going to keep, I'm going to keep adding to that. include more people because if we just is this going to go back i don't know if it's going to go back yeah if we just did it this way right here with um oh what is going on stay there thank you if we just jesus came back and established god's new world who would be the only people who have experienced the good news of jesus the nation of Israel, correct? What's the good news? That God would bless who? Why couldn't the nations experience the blessing of God? Because the people of God could never become who they were supposed to be because the powers of sin, Satan, and death could not actually be overcome. So Jesus overcame those powers so that God's people could actually become a kingdom of priests, a light to the nations, witnesses, So that now the nations can come and experience the blessing of God. Why is there an overlap? Why is there a church? The church exists for the sake of missionary purposes to advance the gospel to the ends of the earth. That's why there is a church. Not to come on Sunday morning, sit in a pew and make yourself feel better about your life. To be part of the church means that you are part of the missionary community in this story to live your life together for the sake of people who don't know Jesus in the presence of God where you will find life in justice and joy. This is the role of the church. We call ourselves the sent community. Father, just as the Father has sent me, Jesus says, so I am sending you. It's an overlap community. And what I mean by that is we look back to what the death and the resurrection of Jesus actually accomplished and we become a preview community. We actually should become, in a sense, a little microcosm of what the new world is going to look like right here. And in doing so, Paul says, to some will be in a realm of life and to others will be in a realm of death. And yet this is why there's a church in the story of God. And we do that until we come to the ends. Those two lines, the black vertical lines, the first one I should have put is the first coming of Jesus. The second line on the right is the second coming of Jesus, where this world, this present evil age, will finally be done away with. And Satan will be the first one cast into the lake of fire, followed by his minions, But then Jesus will also end this story with a new creation. If you haven't picked up yet, my hobby horse is the word heaven. I believe there is a heaven, okay? But that's not where we're going forever. I'll just give you a little... Everyone always asks me about John 14. Jesus says, I go to prepare a place for you. Okay, you ever heard that old 
country Christian song. I got a mansion just over the hilltop. No one's ever heard that? Good for you. Okay. But the King James actually says, I'm preparing a mansion for you. Okay. And so we tell all these people, man, just look forward to that mansion you're going to have in heaven. No one grew up with this understanding? Good. Okay. Some of you, thank you. At least I'm not, I, I'm not crazy. Okay. As I got it, I'm like, how is there a physical building, a mansion in heaven? I don't know, but God can do it. So there's got to be a huge house. In fact, I can listen to Caleb. And we're going to play football in the backyard. Okay. In God's big house. Okay, up in heaven, we're going to be throwing a pigskin around. Truly American. We'll be playing soccer. Okay? <laughs> but either way, like, the idea that we have an afterlife, an ethereal afterlife, in a place called heaven forever, denies the resurrection, it denies what the Scripture is actually teaching, and it denies everything that we believe as Christians that makes us unique. One of the most unique things about Christianity is it holds out hope for a future physical afterlife. No other religion holds out hope. Like, if you look at all the other major religions, it's to escape this world. Christianity is not about escaping a world. It's actually about inhabiting a world where God actually is going to come and dwell. Oh, the mansion piece. Okay, let me come back to that. I go to prepare a place for you. Like, he's got a room for you. Okay, and I use this illustration around here a lot, and I'm not very good at it because I don't watch the show either. When, when my wife died, Shelly, she loved... Gosh, I just lost the name of the show. What's the British show with, like... Downton Abbey, thank you. She loved Downton Abbey, and so six months after she died, I tried to watch it. It's the worst. I shouldn't say the worst. I've seen a lot worse. But not my thing. But one of the things I noticed, you ever notice like people in their travels come and they stop at those houses for a day or two and then what do they do? They leave. Where did Downton Abbey live? Did they consider that a mansion? Yes or no? That's a mansion, right? Where they lived? Am I, am I wrong on that? Because if I am, because I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get a new analogy. My point is that in the ancient world, when the King James was written, a mansion was a large house where actually people could come and take up a night of residence on their way to their final destination. That's what heaven is. That's the room God is preparing for you. Jesus is preparing for you. It's a one-night stay on your way to your final destination, which is the new world. And in this new world that is coming, there's going to be a wedding Revelation 21 says that there's a new Jerusalem that's being prepared as a husband for her bride is coming down and there's a wedding between heaven and earth so that the two dimensions that we currently have right now, the spiritual unseen world and the physical seen worlds, those two dimensions actually are separate, but one day they're going to be united together. They're going to become one. Heaven and earth will become one reality where we pray in the Lord's Prayer, let your will be done on earth as it is where? What are you praying for? You're praying for the wedding of heaven and earth. Ephesians 1.10, Paul says, Jesus came to unite all things in heaven and on earth. There's this unification that is coming. And when this unification comes, my favorite verse in all the Bible, Revelation 21.3, it says, look. Like the Greek has like this, this Greek word to do. It means behold. Look. The dwelling place of God is now with man. Church, behold. 
There's coming a world where God is going to come and dwell with us. And when he comes to dwell with us, he's going to flood that world with his love, his life, and his light. So that there'll be no more darkness, no more mourning, no more crying, no more bills, no more car accidents, no more car shopping. Well, there might be, but... This is the world that God is bringing about. And as we say, this is the end of the beginning. Where God will dwell with all of us for all of eternity. So what is the good news? The good news, according to Paul, that I think encapsulates all ten of those threads, includes this story that Jesus is coming back once and for all to destroy the powers of sin, Satan, and death. And until that time, the church brings about this good news to the nations so that we are the witnesses, the missionary community to the world until he comes back and establishes that world, that kingdom, where you and I will live for all of eternity. This is the background story to the good news of Jesus. Father, help us to participate in the story, not just with our minds, but with our hearts, our affections. For many of us, this just becomes maybe just head knowledge, or maybe like I've heard this a thousand times. But I know every time, almost every time I teach it and hear it, it just renews my affections for what you're doing. So use this story, this good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ to warm our hearts again to what is real, to what is true, what is coming, to what our life is about, to what our life should be wrapped up in. So forgive us for finding other stories to be more appealing. When we hear this story, then we look at what we're doing with our lives, it's just so silly. We're thankful that in the cross, our sins have been forgiven. We belong to that new world. And the Spirit, you are with us, even in our sin, empowering us to be who you have made us to be. Thank you for listening to the Redemption Church Podcast. To learn more about our kingdom ministry located in Chesapeake, Virginia, visit weareredemption.org.